Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's August the 31st, the last day of August in uh, 2021. Momentous day, as the newspapers are reporting it. Um, United States is, uh, according to this headline in the Post, is leaving Afghanistan uh, after two weeks of chaos, 20 years of war, 20 years in reality of chaos as well. Here we have on the front page of the Washington Post a couple of a photograph of a couple of soldiers perhaps doing the dirty work of the United States in Afghanistan. Uh, here we have a, a green bubble uh, for people watching this of uh, the last U.S. soldier, the last boots on the ground in Afghanistan. Uh, America left, of course, um, with its own imprint, its own violent signature after the bomb at the weekend. Biden vowing retribution after 13 U.S. service members were killed. Um, so the U.S. carried out an airstrike. It's called an airstrike. In reality, it was a drone strike to prevent, uh, again, in the language of the Wall Street Journal, to prevent Kabul airport attack. Um, and the result of that drone strike was the death of 10 family members, uh, including, obviously, innocent children. This is how the New York Times reported it. Uh, Zimari Ahadi was coming home Sunday evening, having dropped off colleagues from the local office of an American aid group. Um, and of course, the, the narrative is very familiar. Uh, he came home and then there was terrible violence. Uh, one wonders who is actually um, orchestrating or organizing or pushing the button on the drone strike. One of the most of us don't know the identities of American uh, uh, military figures behind the drone uh, attacks, but one has actually come to light, a man called uh, Christopher Aaron, uh, and he's been written about by one of America's best, most important journalists. Uh, IL Press wrote uh, a piece back in 2018 in June uh, in the New York Times entitled The Wounds of the Drone Warrior, which was about the dirty work of uh, drone warriors like Christopher Aaron. Um, uh, Ale Press has turned that essay and a series of other essays into a really important new book, Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. I think it's one of the most important pieces of journalism written by an American over the last 10 or 20 years. And I'm thrilled that uh, Al is actually on the show talking uh, to us from his home in New York City. Al, um, I don't want to only talk about Afghanistan and drone warfare, but it's an important part of your book. Uh, tell me a little bit about this guy, uh, Christopher Aaron, how you came across him uh, and the kind of wounds that he's experienced and probably the similar kinds that whatever drone warrior uh, caused the death of all those kids in Afghanistan earlier this week. Thank you so much for that introduction. Thank you for having me um, on. And I'm delighted to 
having this conversation about my my book. Um, it's certainly a timely one, as as you note, um, and I think it's very appropriate that you began this conversation by um, highlighting and and drawing attention to the the, the primary victims of drone strikes, um, and that is innocent civilians who are hit by these strikes and and lose their lives and um, and live under uh, the terror of having that happen to them. Um, so I, I think it's really important to to just foreground that initially before I go into uh, what is in my book, which is, um, as the title suggests, uh, Dirty Work. It's about the folks who are delegated to do things like carry out targeted assassinations in the drone program. It's about all kinds of ethically troubling, morally compromising activities that uh, are not incidental to the way the United States um, has organized uh, its social order and um, and to the American way of life uh, in, in many ways. And we can get into to why I say that and, and some of the other examples in the book. Um, but let's just begin with, with, with drone warfare. Um, so I don't think it's a, it's a secret to anyone that, um, you know, the drone program is pretty central to um, how America has continued to fight its forever wars, uh, which began after 9-11. Uh, but there was real exhaustion with the with war and with the costs of ground invasions and occupations, um, of course, because of Iraq first, and, and now also, as we're seeing, uh, because of Afghanistan, uh, in which uh, I, I read this morning, the United States expended $2 trillion that's 12 zeros, $2 trillion. Um, but, but given the cost, and, and not just in dollars, but in, in lives, in US soldiers um, who came back from those wars, uh, sometimes in coffins, in other cases uh, with PTSD or with, um, with physical injuries, lifelong physical injuries, um, there was a turn towards another form of warfare. And that is what, we, what, what you mentioned at the outset, that drone strikes, which don't put our soldiers at risk, um, at least in the conventional sense that warfare does, um, but that do, uh, you know, inflict violence in, in, in countries, not just with which we're formally at war, but also many that we're not formally at war with. Um, and I decided in both the piece you mentioned in at the outset and in this book to look at another set of um, compromised actors in the drone war venture, which is you know the imagery analysts and the people who cycle through this program. When the drone warfare program began, I think a lot of people, including many critics, thought, well, this is just gonna be like playing a video game. You press the button, you don't think about it, someone dies, someone gets hit, you go home, and the soldiers not only aren't physically at risk, they're also not morally in any way uh, encumbered by anything. But what the evidence suggests thus far, um, both the uh, sort of portraits that I draw of people inside the program, but also the, the studies by psychologists that the military itself has done, um, high rates of burnout, uh, very, very 
co consistent exposure to graphic violence and um, and death and and events that um, that are disturbing. And you watch this from a distance, and you know the in conventional warfare, the the warrior him him or herself is is has has risk for themselves. And I think that in a sense creates a kind of um, a story one can tell about the fairness of the fight. But for right, Joe, and, was, and the moral costs um, you, in your piece for the times uh, you write about Aaron um, uh, sitting in his office, basically bombing uh, Afghanistan at no personal risk to himself. I'm quoting you on some days, Aaron discovered little of interest appeared on the screens, uh, goats grazing on the Afghan hillside, uh, mundanity, even serenity. Other times, what unspooled was jarringly intimate coffins being carried through the streets after drone strikes, a man squatting in a field to defecate after a meal, an iman speaking to a group of 15 young boys in the courtyard of his madrasa. If a Hellfire missile killed the target, it occurred to Aaron as he stared at the screen. Everything the imam might have told his pupils about America's war with their faith would be confirmed. It's, it's wonderful writing, and it's uh, reflected in the book. You begin the book, um, Ayal, with a marvelous quote by one of America's greatest social critics, James Baldwin. He comes up consistently in this uh, show. So many people rely on his wisdom and his experience. Uh, the, the words at the beginning of your book uh, are from Baldwin. The powerless must do their own dirty work. The powerful have done it for them. Uh, your book is about the inequalities of power uh, and of, uh, well, of economic, of cultural, of political and military power in America today, isn't it? That's the, the heart of the book. Yes, I would say it is. And, and I, I guess I, I would, to pull back, if we think about dirty work, which I define as, as you know, unethical activity uh, that society depends on and tacitly condones, but doesn't want to hear too much about, if, if we think of it as, as that, um, I think there are two fundamental reasons that, uh, that such activity can go on and 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 be perpetuated without real bothering people, without being at the center of public debate, without weighing on, you know, the conscience of of, of the nation. Um, one of those factors is secrecy and concealment. And so, if we think about drone warfare, um, we have a program that's swathed in secrecy. Uh, we don't. We're not told. Uh, in, in the strike you mentioned at the outset, we have a lot of detail because, because the entire media right now is focused on Afghanistan, but most strikes don't get that attention. Um, and so there's, there's, a, there's a level of secrecy that, that keeps it sort of in the shadow. Um, but I think there's a second factor that is equally important, and that's that um, we delegate this work, by and large, to people with fewer choices and opportunities in the United States. And it's organized in such a way that the powerful and the privileged not only don't have to do the dirty work uh, in the United States, they don't even have to see it, right? It's out of sight, out of mind. Uh, where are drone bases? They're in these sort of far off, uh, you know, and, and restricted um, military bases that, that citizens don't just stumble across when they're driving cross country you need authorization to go there and 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 it's out of out of the way um, but likewise with the other 
forms of dirty work I look at in the book, industrial slaughterhouses. I look at the, the immigrants who work on the kill floors of slaughterhouses that produce the meat and poultry that is consumed in abundance in America. And um, lo and behold, you have once again secrecy. There are states where uh, cameras are banned from, from the insides of slaughterhouses, but you also have geographic remoteness to kind of keep it, you know, again, away from us. Jails and prisons. Uh, jails and prisons are stigmatized institutions. You don't find them built in uh, posh suburbs uh, or in wealthy enclaves in Silicon Valley. They are by and large in more uh, remote rural areas and poorer parts of the country. And so it's this, in, it's this geographic inequality. Right, the, the geographic, um, w- we've talked a lot, uh, Ayal, about geography on this show and America's yeah. changing geography. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the excellent American journalist, Tom uh, Zollner. Um, he mm. wrote a wonderful book about how American, and I'm quoting him here, the American concept of geography has undergone a powerful shift He writes, place is less important than it has ever been to those who can free themselves from it, yet more important to those who aren't able to leave it. And that's manifested in all sorts of ways, politically and culturally. And as you say, morally as well, when you can free yourself from geography, you escape accountability or moral accountability, don't you? At least according to to your arguments in your book. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's that's uh, that's a really powerful quote, uh, and and it definitely echoes the themes of of what I found in my book. Um, just traveling to find the workers who do uh, the dirty work in America, um, I had to go to the places that most Americans don't see. Um, you know, uh, in Florida, uh, you know, which is a wash in tourism, and 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 I've certainly visited it you know, dozens of times before writing this book, I'd never seen a prison in, in, in Florida um, in, until I started reporting and, and looking for, uh, you know, the, the opening section of the book is set in the mental health ward of a prison where terrible abuses take place. It happens to be about an hour drive south of Miami, this particular prison, the Dade Correctional Institution. Um, but I certainly had never seen it. And, and there, it's designed that way, right? We, we don't just sort of happen upon it as we, as we take and, it. And these people are invisible as well. You write, you, you write about the, uh, the experience um, at the Dade Correctional uh, Institute. You wrote about it for The New Yorker. Uh, you write about this woman called Harriet Krzyzewski, who is the sort of the equivalent of, of, of Christopher Aaron in the mental health industry, another um, another of the people who um, are doing our dirty work for an, for us, and who are, who are who are experiencing suffering the consequences uh, in a funny kind of way, in a literary way. I see your book as the reverse of Calvino's Invisible Cities. Uh, you mm-hmm. remember Calvino wrote about the Invisible Cities. It's a wonderfully romantic book written. Uh, imagining that he is Marco Polo, you're doing the reverse. Your invisible cities are ugly. They're dark. They're immoral, aren't they? In your book, yes, they are. Um, you know, and and in in to to no small extent, you know, I think that um, in, invisibility is a big theme in the, in the book. But I also think that um, you know, since you you mentioned uh, the liter- the literary side of of, of the invisible. This is as much about how our imaginations 
as it is about laws, secrecy mm. laws, and so forth. Uh, I think that, um, you know, take the drone wars, right? We, we, I mentioned that the program is swathed in secrecy. You can't get access to bases and so forth. And yet, and yet, um, if you went to your local library, um, I would, I would guess uh, there are books there, good books, well-reported um, investigative journalism about the drone program. If you went on Google, um, you could Google drone strikes and civilian casualties, and tons of information will come up um, on websites that track the civilian deaths, on um, you know reports from human rights organizations. It's all it's it's it is invisible. And yet, I think that um, one of the the themes that that I wrestled with the, throughout the book is whether that is because the government restricts access to this information, or because citizens in a so-called free society are distracted and apathetic, and ultimately don't want to hear too much. Right, but, we're behind our screens. Uh, you know, it's it's perhaps not. Coinc uh, uncoincidental, Ayal, that you begin your book uh, in 1948 in Germany, in the city of Frankfurt. It's not coincidental, I thought, because, of course, of the Frankfurt School and their critique of American capitalism, which in many ways fits very comfortably into your critique as well. But you don't begin with Adorno or Horkheimer. You actually begin with a less well-known but in, perhaps in some ways equally important sociologist, Everett Hughes. Why do you begin with Hughes and why do you begin in Frankfurt in 1948? Yeah, I mean, Hughes is a, a, a figure I stumbled across as I was um, beginning this book. And, um, and you're right, he's not well known in the way that Adorno and, and even some, you know, C. Wright Mills. Right, and, and those guys led the critique of American capitalism That's in right. the post-war age. That's right. He didn't really have a grand theory. He was a kind of elusive writer. He was an essayist, um, but a fascinating and influential uh, figure. He taught at the University of Chicago. His students, by the way, include Irving Goffman, arguably the most uh, uh, influential sociologist of the 20th century. Who wrote um, about the, the, the sociology of, 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 of the theater. Yes, yes, and also quite famously about asylums, which is which features right. in the book quite a bit. And of course, the roots of Foucault and and, and that whole French historical uh, narrative is very much uh, built into his work and that work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I think Hughes um, is a kind of forgotten figure, and I and I hope there is a Hughes revival, and maybe maybe my book can can sort of spark renewed interest. So what did Hughes say that that justifies? Yeah, so, um, so his 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 sort of theoretical, putting him at the, the theoretical heart of your book. Yeah. So, so as I said, I stumbled across an essay he wrote. Um, he actually wrote it, uh, he wrote it in lecture form shortly after he visited Frankfurt in, uh, in post in, in 1948. And um, he went there curious to know what, um, what he called the good people. I'm using air quotes because you, you, you'll know why as, as I go on. But these were um, the people he'd known in Germany who were cosmopolitan intellectuals, uh, white-collar professionals, architects, teachers, uh, journalists, not members of the Nazi party, but people who had stayed in Germany uh, during the war and who he wanted to 
confront in some ways, to ask them, you know, you were here during this period of mass atrocity and genocide. What, what do you have to say about it? Um, and generally, and in, in his diaries, by the way, what he says for the most part is people don't want to bring it up. No one's talking about it. But Hughes was a provocateur and he does bring it up. And what he hears, uh, and it's captured in this one conversation that he begins this essay with, this, this essay called Good People and Dirty Work. What he hears this architect say is, you know, I'm ashamed for my people whenever I hear about this, which is what you'd expect a, a sort of cosmopolitan critic of the Nazis to say. Uh, but then the architect goes on to say, but you know, the Jews, they were a problem. And, and the problem had to be settled somehow. And he goes on to talk about how the Jews were taking all the good jobs and they were crammed into their filthy ghettos. And, you know, there's this way in which what Hughes is hearing is, well, I'm ashamed about what the Nazis did. It was terrible. But, you know, the Jews were an outgroup. They were not part of this country in the way that other citizens were. And, and so we, we kind of define them as a problem. And, and out of this grows this essay, Good People and Dirty Work, in which Hughes says that the dirty work and the quote unquote good people are not disconnected. That in fact, the dirty work is done by agents of the good people who refrain from asking too many questions about what they sort of know is being done in the shadows, because at some level, it doesn't displease them, right? At some level, a problem is being taken care of. And to me, the most fascinating part of the article and this essay is when Hughes sort of pulls back from the case of Nazi Germany, which is such an extreme case, and says, you know, this dynamic exists everywhere. You don't, don't think it doesn't exist in my own country, in the United States. And in fact, as I found in, in correspondence between Hughes and, and other sociologists, he really was addressing the essay to his fellow Americans. He was saying, let's be more alert to the dangers in our midst, to racial violence, to private lynching, to all kinds of things that he felt uh, good people in America. It, it doesn't <laughs> seem as if um, Americans listened to Hughes very much. Um, <laughs> um, you talked about forever wars. Um, we also have in America forever prisons and forever prisoners. We even had a show with the sociologist uh, Elliot um, Young on forever prisoners, that the state of American, uh, the state of American jails. I'm quoting him here. Uh, we once imagined ourselves as a nation of immigrants, but we've become a nation of immigrant prisons. Um, how does the the prison, the, the military industrial prison infrastructure, fit into your narrative? I think it's it's absolutely central. Um, so again, to to and, and in fact, Everett Hughes in that essay mentioned how Americans see prisoners, and you know, he said, well this is kind of an outgroup as well. And, you know, there's brutality. Are they the Jews? Are, are, are prisoners the Jews of contemporary America as the Jews were to the, the, the good Germans after the war? Well, I think that, that I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to draw an analogy because the, the, the contexts are so different. But what I think is... is you know, well, you introduce known, it in your book. I mean, you introduce yeah, well, what, what, what metaphor. What I say, what I, what I think is, is striking is that... Um, you know, we have built the world's largest 
prison system over the course of several decades. This was a bipartisan effort. There is no point in saying it was just, you know, Ronald Reagan. It was also Bill Clinton. It was also lots of Democratic governors, including in Florida, who ran year after year on tough on crime measures. Um, and uh, to some extent, there has been a questioning of mass incarceration in this country in the last couple of years, uh, thanks to writers like Michelle Alexander and, and others. But we still don't look closely and don't know much about the conditions inside jails and prisons where more than 2 million people are still confined. Um, and so the first third of the book, behind, uh, the quarter of the book, sorry, behind the walls is, is an effort to, to take us inside and to take us inside through, I think, a very invisible, as invisible as the prisoners actually, uh, group, which is the people who work in the prisons, not just the corrections officers, but also the mental health aides, because prisons and jails in the United States are our largest mental health institutions right now. And that's really where I focus that opening section. You have this great term, uh, IL, you call, and it could have come from, 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 uh, from the Frankfurt School, the metabolism of the modern world. You focus a lot on economics. You quote a number of people who've been on the show, uh, critics of the inequalities of American capitalism, including the UC Berkeley uh, economist Gabriel Zuckman. And we also had uh, Jessica Bruder on the show, the author of Nomad Land. To what extent, in your view, is the, the, the re-architecting of American capitalism, of the nomadic nature of work, how core is that to the the dirty work now uh, characterizing America, which you write about. And again, I, I want to quote uh, Bruder, uh, wages and housing costs have diverged so dramatically that for a growing number of Americans, the dream of a middle-class life has gone from difficult to impossible. Uh, people just have to be, uh, people are sucked into dirty work, whether they like it or not, uh, in, in our precariat. Yeah, I think, that, I, I think that the book is very much about kind of late capitalism and American capitalism, but um, its its focus is a little different than, than some of the authors and books you've mentioned in the sense that I'm trying to make uh, a point about how capitalism shapes the moral landscape of, of this country. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, to that extent, um, the way I see dirty work is that, um, you know, your... Uh, the, the, the folks who are delegated to do this work in prisons, uh, on drone bases, in industrial slaughterhouses, um, they're the ones dirtying their hands. They're the ones um, to the extent that uh, they haven't numbed themselves. Uh, right. So it's the, it's the Chris Aarons of the world. It's the... Um... It, it, it's uh, the 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 uh, Harriet the Harriet Krzykowski's uh, working in Dade Correctional Institutions. These are the people who 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 are given the moral responsibility. And meanwhile, the rest of us, um, it serves our interest. I wonder whether you think this is a conspiracy. Again, sort of going back to the Frankfurt School. If Marcuse had written your book, he would have suggested <laughs> there's a conspiracy. Uh, you write, it serves the interests of a disengaged public that doesn't want to think too much about the endless wars being fought in its name, uh, the dirty work of conducted targeted assassinations, 
Likewise, with the dirty work of warehousing the mentally ill in jails and prisons in a society that has failed to fund mental health services. So as you say, your book is about the the moral cleanliness of mainstream America and the lack of accountability, systematic accountability that most Americans recognize in this system while they're benefiting off the the fat of the the society. Is that fair? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't think it's a conspiracy um, any more than I, I would. I think that, you know, if we look during the pandemic, you know, there's been a, a sort of heightened awareness in America that, you know, the folks who are the grocery clerks, the delivery drivers, the folks who were mm. risking their lives uh, and their health during the pandemic were disproportionately um, poorer uh, working uh, lower wage jobs, less privileged, while software engineers and bankers were sheltering in place at home. Um, that's not a conspiracy, but I think it's it's structural. Um, you know, it's 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 a reflection of a society that is profoundly unequal, and that has kind of that where that inequality is so embedded that it, in a sense we we don't even notice it anymore. It takes a pandemic to kind of. Right. Make, make the country s- step back and say, oh, right, there's this whole class of workers. Right. You write about the pandemic. You said since the winter of 2020, our collective reliance on invisible workers who help keep society running has been glaringly exposed. Do you think COVID has really changed anything or we have such short memories, a, a general culture of amnesia in this country in a couple of years when COVID is forgotten? Will all that be forgotten too? I think that I think the jury is out. I mean, I think that what what um, I'm struck by, I'm old enough to know and remember uh, the time when when I was a journalist and and the subject of inequality was not, you know, considered um, uh, of importance. You know, this was post uh, Cold War 1990s. Um, America was the model for the world. Europe had to get with it, be more like America and, you know, uh, more neoliberal. And inequality was really not a, a, a talked about widely in in the sort of elite media, uh, really until Occupy Wall Street. And then, of course, the financial crash of 2008. I think among people who grew up, who have you know, people under 30 in this country, um, and you see it in polling, they're acutely aware of how unequal the society is. And they're, um, you know, much more concerned about it and willing to kind of uh, read and embrace radical theorists who were completely written off, uh, you know, 15 years ago. So I, I don't like think who, like who? Um, well, like like a figure like David Graeber, right? Who, right. who, who, you know, who just died. Yeah, yeah. Um, or or um, you know, um, uh, just some of the economists, Zuckman, Emmanuel Sayers, um, Thomas Piketty. You know, that the, the, these were right. these were works that, if published in the 90s, okay. Who, who, let's get on with celebrating American capitalism for its achievements. Um, I think there is a change there. Um, but, you know, I wrote Dirty Work in part because I don't think we fully reckoned at all with um, the ways in which uh, capitalism and, and you know, the sort of distribution of labor in the United States uh, has these other consequences, these, 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 these moral consequences as well as economic consequences. Um, so if we go back to the people who work in, our, in, in America's prison system, um, I think that the prison like, system- Like uh, Harriet Krishalski. Like Harriet. Yeah, like Harriet. Uh, who looks, I mean, if you sit next to this woman on a plane, she looks like a, a lawyer or a doctor. I mean, one wouldn't know that she, looked, that she works in a prison. 
Well, not that you would, not that she should know, and not not that yeah. we, she 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 should have a a stamp on her forehead or something. You might not know it, although I will say that when I first met Harriet um, and I was interviewing her about her experience at this prison where she witnessed abuse that is really shocking. I'm I'm, I'm not just talking about um, you know uh, beatings and and. Uh, verbal uh, accosting, but guards locking mentally ill prisoners in a scalding shower uh, where one prisoner named Darren Rainey ends up collapsing and dying and his his body is is covered in burns after this. Um, yeah. When I first met Harriet, and this was years afterwards, uh, she was wearing a wig. And the reason she was wearing a wig is that the stress and the distress of working at Dade in that environment caused her hair to fall out. Uh, it sort of had these physical manifestations. She couldn't eat, she told me. Mm. Uh, she fell into a depression. And it's those psychic wounds that are very hard to measure and very hard to capture, but that I think are are central to the, the stories I tell in the book and, and absolutely yeah the book yeah. is brilliant uh, uh, congratulations uh, I think it's going to win Thank a lot you. of awards it's it's one of those books that should wake people up but like so many of these books to me at least the depressing thing I mean obviously it's a deeply depressing book in itself the whole nature of dirty work but the really depressing thing is I don't think there's any you don't really come up with a convincing fix it's not a book about fixes at the end, you say the most effective way to help people overcome moral injury is to communalize it. And maybe that's true in theory, but in practice, I just don't see how that happens. I mean, are you in any way optimistic about fixing this without a full-scale revolution against the, the infrastructure of early 21st century American capitalism? Well, I mean, I, I don't, it's not my job to, um, to give people false hope. Um, and you know, I, I set out to tell uh, a set of stories and 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 to provide an analytical framework to um, you know anchor those stories in 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 a theory that that I present, which which is that you know dirty work is both essential uh, to the way we've structured this society, um, its hiddenness and its um, delegation to the least advantaged um, perpetuates it, and 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 really is quite central to. Uh, to our way, our way of life. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, there's so much to it. I mean, you you have a, a whole section on screens and video games and our sort of uh, distracted nature of our culture. We've had many shows about this. Also, uh, there's a whole section on 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 food and and the convenience of, of of monstrous factories for killing animals that we're not accountable for. So it's a really important book. But coming back to this fix i mean yeah people watching this are gonna say okay i accept this um you il has done in a sense the dirty work of revealing dirty work what can we do what what yeah. can people concretely so, do to address these pro this profound injustice of american life the dirty so, so, work nature of the economy yeah so so what i what i would want to say about that is that one conclusion i drew from the book um I don't, I don't argue that dirty work is immutable, um, that it is this unchanging force that we have no um, ability to alter. Uh, I do suggest that as individuals, there's very little 
capacity to change these things, right? So when you think about the fossil fuel, I, there's a section of the book called Dirty Energy, where I look right. at, you know, the, the fracking and, and, and the offshore oil drilling uh, that um, powers the American economy, the metabolism of the modern world, um, but that is sort of done, you know, offshore, again, you know... Um, invisibly. We don't invisibly. know about um, Well, you know, there, you can buy an electric car, um, you can uh, conserve energy in your home, um, and that's important. But as an individual, you are not going to change the larger problem. The only way to change, the, the, to address the bigger problem is collective. Um, and that's true of the industrial food system. It's also true of the, the jails and prisons. Um, you know, and, and I do think that, um, you know, again, to, to, to look at uh, jails and prisons, why are they the largest mental health institutions in this country? Uh, well, because there was a movement to deinstitutionalize the mentally ill, right? There were, there were these state public hospitals and asylums where abuses were exposed in the 70s and, and 80s, and they were shut down because people were outraged and thought, you know, we can do better than this. The problem is, we then had, you know, tax revolts and budget cuts, and instead of funding a public health system to uh, and community services that could uh, serve as an alternative to asylums, we ended up just relying on jails and prisons to do a lot of that dirty work, in a sense. Um, that, I think, can change. I don't think it's, you know, I, I quote uh, a sociologist writing about how America's you know, abandonment of the mentally ill has no parallel um, in, in, you know, late, late, the late 20th century. This is uh, Christopher Jenks. Um, it's, the situation isn't great in, in a lot of other European countries and other Western countries, but it doesn't have to be as deplorable as, as the conditions I described. So to that extent, you know, it isn't a comforting book to read as an individual, but it hopefully will lead people to think about why is this work happening and does right. it need to, do we really need it? Um, you know, can we sustain it? I mean, much of it is not sustainable. Well, we don't, uh, at least on this show, we don't really looking for comforting books. It is an uncomfortable book, an uncomfortable subject, but an essential one. Uh, IL Press's new book, Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America is a, a bracing depressing but essential read. Congratulations on the book. Uh, I, I, as I said, I think it's going to win lots of awards this year. It, everyone needs to read it, anyone in America at least. Um, and I think particularly liberals because they're often too glib on these subjects. Um, I, in a, I know you're in New York at the moment uh, in these strange times. Uh, what else should people be reading in, in addition to um, dirty work? Well, thank, thank you for all of that. Um, so I have a couple of books. I, if you don't mind, I'll I'll show your listeners uh, what I've oh, been viewers, reading. I am. They're not just listeners. They need to be watching this. It's on video as well as audio. And, and viewers, the, the audience that I wish I could see in person. Um, so uh, two books that I'm immersed in. Um, wonderful novel called The Art of Losing. Can you see it there? Um, by Alice Zeniter. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. It's a it's a multi generational um, account of a French Algerian family that is both a searing sort of uh, you know meditation on 
French colonialism in Algeria and on the experience of Algerians who then end up in France as outsiders um, and with identities and, and sort of wrestling with uh, choices that were made to leave Algeria, the role that the, the sort of fa father or grandfather in the, in the story plays. It's, it's just an abrasing and, and, and amazing uh, piece of literature, one of, the, one of the best novels I've read in years. Um, and the other book I'm reading, very different, um, big idea book, uh, Thinking the 20th Century, which is a book of conversations between two historians, um, Tony Judd, the late Tony Judd, uh, the great uh, historian of, of Europe, and, and the, I think, um, you know, handful of essayists who match Judd in breadth and, um, and uh, just scope and brilliance. Um, in conversation with the historian Timothy Snyder. And it's a really interesting book because it's it's both an intellectual autobiography of Judd. He kind of goes through, in each chapter, tells you a little bit about his own relationship to Marxism, to Zionism, to, to uh, youthful fa faiths that he ended up abandoning, um, to... Um, just, just uh, so, so, so he, he so wave it again at the uh, w wave the Judd book again because I think some of our viewers may have missed that. Yes. Uh, yeah, we we had uh, Schneider on the show. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. of course, we can't get Judd. Judd is also a big enthusiast of European trains, the Anglo-American historian. Yes. Uh, I'll press continuing in that important critical tradition. Real honor to have you on the show. Your new book is just out: Dirty Work, Essential Jobs, and the Hidden Trial. The, sorry, the hidden toll of inequality in America. Again, congratulations on the book. Great Thank to talk, so and I hope you'll, you'll you'll come back on the show because there's so much else to talk about: technology, food, the environment. Sure. We haven't even talked about the environment for this, but it's essential to your arguments. Thank you so much. Keep well, keep writing, and keep exposing uh, the dirty secrets, the invisible, the ugly, invisible cities behind America. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care.